0: It's time to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. This week, author Jesse Jarno joins Nate to talk about his book, Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, The Blacklist, and The Battle for the Soul of America. In this episode, Jesse tells Nate about one of America's unlikeliest million-selling pop combos, the folk singing, unabashedly left-wing weavers, and their battles with the paranoid American right-wing, all in the context of a pre-rock and roll 50s when pop was at its all-time whitest and blandest. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: Welcome to Let It Roll. This is your host Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined by Jesse Jarno, author of "Wasn't That a Time," "The Weavers," "The Blacklist," and "The Babble for the Soul of America." Jesse, welcome to the show.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Nate.
1: Cool. And so that's quite a, a subtitle there, "The Babble <laughs> for the Soul of America." Why did you choose to write a book about the Weavers in the 21st century?
2: Oh, I mean, there are there are a few few reasons for that. I mean, I guess the the most the, the simplest one and the the place that that really was just the seed for it was that I, they were my favorite band when I was a kid. That's like <laughs> the, the simplest version is that they were the first group that I knew the names of every member of the band, you know, kind of knew their records, that, that thing. And then after I finished my last book, I realized that there was no book about them. I just, you know, it's not like they've, they've been high in my rotation for a while, but I started thinking about them again and it, at the same time, this was in the summer of 2016. It didn't really seem like a viable thing to write a book about the Weavers at that point. And then the 2016 election happened, and and suddenly their story seemed a lot more current. Um, in kind of a in in both an awful way, but also in a really what turned out to be kind of a really inspiring way. Um, the Weavers were blacklisted. They were, you know, an enormous pop band in in the 1950s. Um, in the early 1950s at the height of the McCarthy era and the height of, of the Red Scare and had their career, you know, sort of broken out underneath them um, as part of this revenge politics, basically, that, that sort of took over, um, you know, American politics in, in that era. And it, it just, sort of, you know, it was pretty obvious that that was sort of exactly the same situation that was going on now. And um, so that was sort of what, that was kind of what, push me back into the weavers world but they were uh, they were a really important band to me when i was when i was a kid and pete Seeger, especially you know they were the beginning of my uh, my musical education um it's there there's a lot there's a lot of musical worlds inside the weavers and they they ended up pointing me in a ton of different directions that i'm only kind of <laughs> i've only i've only been figuring out recently that the, the weavers are, are where those came from for me but they they definitely are
1: yeah, and I, I want to thank you for writing this book because I really enjoyed it. And the Weavers were not somebody that was part of my uh, native musical education. I what folk music background I had, you know, was more the Bob Dylan, the second wave of of American folkies from the '60s, and then going back would tend to focus more on like Woody Guthrie and Leadbelly, who are kind of antecedents and friends of the Weavers, and sort of skipped over the Weavers. And and right. I also. I find them kind of fascinating, you know, as part of this project with this podcast, I've gotten kind of fascinated with that pre-rock and roll era in the 50s. And I think the Weavers are really critical to that with, with the way that they and their producer, Gordon Jenkins, were really sort of the first of a wave of musicians and producers that simplified music a little bit at the end of the 40s and and their songs I mean they're a really unlikely bunch to become pop superstars and and tell us a little bit about how that happened how did these commies fellow (laughs) travelers at least you know from the folk Uh, scene Go from campaigning for Henry Wallace to to rocketing up the charts.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's that's a a fascinating story by itself. You know, the Weavers really were very much of the 50s in a way that I feel like Woody Woody and Leadbelly, very much contemporaries and good friends of the Weavers, both um, are very much are are timeless in a different way because of sort of their. because of their sort of the stripped down nature of their recordings, the Weavers were a pop band, you know, so uh, their music very much still lives in the fifties when you, when you listen to it now, or at least when you listen to the, their hit songs now, but they, they started kind of in that same stripped down mode as, as Woody Guthrie and Leadbelly. They were, you know, they, they kind of, their, their most distant roots were this group called the Almanac Singers that Woody Guthrie was in along with Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes, who, who later co-founded the Weavers. Um, But the Weavers uh, really grew out of an organization called People's Songs, which was what um, Pete Seeger and and Woody Guthrie and all these people got involved with right after World War II, which was kind of right immediately after World War II, the union movement got really big again, some of the largest uh, labor strikes in American history. And People's Songs was designed to sort of serve the labor movement and serve kind of sort of these extensions of the New Deal and various progressive causes, um, and it turned out that that was just a terrible idea for a business or, to, you know, for an institution, because almost, you know, a year or two after that, you know, the, the Red Scare starts starts coming into the picture. So um, People's Songs is kind of disintegrating and people are, you know, the the, the members of it are, you know, sort of going off in their own directions but there's there's this sort of core group of musicians and the weavers grew out of that core group of musicians that stayed with people songs and realized that their particular blend of voices was something that was really powerful and that they you know really you know got a lot out of out of doing that out of out of singing those songs with each other and because of sort of the nature of things um you know, topical songs, the idea of, you know, singing these these political progressive songs that that spoke to particular moments, um, became harder and harder. There just weren't that many venues for, for that. And they they made a concerted effort like a a really conscious choice at at one point in um, 1949 to become a pop band to 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 go into nightclubs and to to sing for another audience to sing for a pop audience that wasn't necessarily progressively inclined though (laughs) the place that they chose to do that was the village vanguard and you know which is a, a Jazz infamous jazz club in New York and and one of the first integrated clubs nightclubs in New York so definitely that was going to be <laughs> a, a fairly sympathetic crowd um, but their idea was that the, the previous year they'd been involved in um not been involved they they were viciously attacked by what you'd probably call fascists um, at a performance in in uh, in north of New York. Um, at a Paul after a Paul Robeson performance. Um, and it was a really it was a wake up call, like a really shocking thing for all of them to 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 sort of be under this, you know, fascist, racist attack, have you know literally stones thrown at them while police look the other way. And the goal with the Weavers was to cross that divide. That's sort of the, the where the battle for the soul of America comes in. And they really wanted to, like, reach out and try to reach that audience. So that was the goal with making this pop music. And that you're right, they're really, it's an unlikely formula. It's not a formula. It's just as, you know, Im- improbable to have these four characters doing this. You know, Pete Seeger, this like endlessly earnest, optimistic, you know, basically a saint. You know, Ronnie Gilbert, who's this powerful, this powerful woman vocalist. Lee Hayes, who's this large guy from the South, also a really troubled alcoholic. Um, but a brilliant thinker and a brilliant song arranger and, uh, Fred Hellerman, he was kind of this gawky kid out of Brooklyn and they build this audience at the village Vanguard. And one of the people in that audience happens to be this guy named Gordon Jenkins, who's kind of a, a forgotten figure now, um, in American music, but at the time was, uh, really like the top producer in the country. Uh, he was, he was the A&R guy for, for Decca records, and had you know the Gordon Jenkins Orchestra made made pop hits of their own, and he you know you know he arranged songs for other people, um, and he wanted to sign the Weavers, and, and Decca just did not want to, um, and he volunteered to put their first out their first single out under the name uh, the Gordon Jenkins Orchestra featuring the Weavers, which was a an Israeli folk song on one side uh, with with new English lyrics, and then Goodnight Irene. Uh, by Leadbelly on the other side, which actually has very distant roots, probably as a Tin Pan Alley song that kind of became mutated through the folk process. Um, and both of those songs uh, went to number one in the summer of 1950. First, uh, Zena, 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 and then uh, Goodnight Irene, one right after the other. And then the Weavers were at the top of the charts, and it's they're they're just these catchy, bouncy songs with these incredible stacked harmonies. And those versions have these you know big very of the moment arrangements by Gordon Jenkins that, like I was saying, really anchor them in the 1950s. But they're the Weavers' voices and Pete Seeger's banjo playing, you know, kind of cut through all of that. Um, I really prefer the versions without the big, <laughs> the big pop arrangements. There are a couple of a couple of their singles that I really like, but mostly I prefer the uh, the stripped back Weavers. But that was that was what put them there.
1: And let's hear "Goodnight Irene." This was a, a song that between the Weaver's version and various cover versions including Frank Sinatra sold over a million copies in the uh, year of 1950 so goodnight Irene by the Weaver's Good night, Irene, one of two songs that broke the Weavers through to a pop audience. And before we get too much into their career, I want to talk a little bit about, you, you gave us a quick outline of who the four Weavers were, but I want to talk a little bit about the Almanac Singers and the first sort of political hot water that Seeger and Hayes got into. And for me, this was. This has always been something that, there was one incident in the Almanac Singers' career when they enthusiastically went all in in supporting the uh notorious joseph stalin adolf hitler non-aggression pact and suddenly they went from very anti-fascist to trying to push this line of you know hitler and stalin are both cool and let's just be peaceful and mellow right as world well i wouldn't
2: wouldn't go so far as to say they were saying hitler was cool i think they're they're Version of endorsing that was they called themselves pro peace. You know they they were trying to it was it, it, they were uh, anti interventionist. I guess is, is is the phrase they didn't want America to get involved in World War II. That was that was the that was the extent to which they endorsed that thing, which was not you know it's not a great look now. Nor obviously, nor is um, you know, nor is their. Pete's Pete Seeger, anyways, uh, adherence to to Stalinism. Um, the other three weavers uh, weren't really members of the Communist Party. You know, you you call them fellow travelers, or you know, they're you know somewhere to the left of where 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 Bernie Sanders is today. Um, you know, not not that they were not progressives. But Pete Seeger was the only one with a real alignment, uh, to the communist party. Woody, Woody Guthrie as well, for that matter. Um, so this, that was the position of, of the, of the American communist party in 1941 as, as World War II was kind of, um, ravaging Europe. Um, but then, uh, but then Hitler went and invaded, uh, went and invaded Russia and, and the, 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 the peace pact was off, um, which I might add was not what, you know, the United States still not involved in World War II until until after Pearl Harbor. Um, so, you know, the the, the the pro-peace thing was, you know, it's sort of a weird spot to be in. But, um, but in, you know, it kind of took all these songs that they were singing at that point, which were, you know, ripped out of the headlines of the Daily Worker, which was, the, you know, the Communist Party paper in New York, and suddenly they couldn't sing those songs anymore. They were just not... You, know, you just you couldn't do that um, but one of the ones that they had already sung and recorded was this song called the ballad of October 16th which was um about you know the the the, the offending line the really controversial line uh, was uh, I hate war and so does Eleanor but we won't be safe till everybody's dead which was just a, a shocking thing I guess to hear on a recording in 1941 and the that recording made it uh, to the white house. And apparently Franklin Roosevelt was, was pretty not pleased with its existence and sort of looked into what he could do, but was sort of talked off the ledge, um, from doing anything about it though. Though J Edgar Hoover definitely got involved and that, that was sort of, you know, that's kind of the original sin in Pete Seeger's career. That's the, the, the thing that, you know, started all the investigations. That's what opened his, what became an extremely voluminous FBI file. Um, and and really, you know, uh, it, it comes back to haunt them in a bunch of different junctures in the story. Just this one, you know, yeah. ill-advised thing they did when, you know, how, you know, yeah, they were probably old enough to know better, but not that much old, <laughs> that much yeah. older, old enough to know better. Yeah, it's like, really- it, was, like, they knew it was controversial, like when the, the record company put it out. They didn't put the record company wouldn't even put its name on it, um, you know, or address on it. They came up with like an anonymous, an anonymous thing to do it.
1: Yeah, and, and uh, you start the book with a chapter that focuses on a particular incident in their career when they're pretty close to the height of their fame, and they're playing in Akron, Ohio, and the uh, uh, the VFW, the Legion of Foreign Veterans of Foreign Wars, and the American Legion are um, have been motivated to attend their concert in a threatening way, and at the same time, uh, there's a uh, somebody testifying against them at one of these. Uh, I believe it was the uh, House on american Affairs Committee, HUAC. Um, and this guy, uh, now I'm blanking on his oh, name. Oh, Harvey Matuso. Yeah, Matuso. And, and I, I I thought that was a really great choice to pick. And there's a paragraph that you wrote I wanted to, to read um, from this chapter. It goes, good entertainment, though they might be, the weavers' deeper sense of mission was threaded through their music and never – and nearly every intake of breath, a vision of cultural equity and global harmony. To the local newspaper, their banjo player declined to deny any charges that the band were communists. When people have asked us, we've said, look, do you like our music? He told the reporter, we're musicians, not politicians. The only platform we can stand on is our songs. Let the people judge. And I thought that was just a pretty good summation of their mission and what they were trying to do. And I also enjoy the way you threaded the snitch reports and the the anonymous um people reporting things to the to the fbi and 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 how frequently they missed things that were in Cashbox and other music magazines
2: right 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 well you know it is a reminder that you know you couldn't just google something up in those days it was sort of you were sort of reliant on on what what things what pieces of information came your way but you know there's something that i'm still pretty entertained by is the in uh the right after it's right after that in the book but there's an FBI agent who's like going around New York like asking questions he's not an FBI agent he's um he's from the army but he's investigating Pete Seeger for possible sedition so he's going around and like you know asking Pete's acquaintances about you know Pete and various things and he ends up at the Village Vanguard and he's talking to the owner of the Village Vanguard about this guy Woody Guthrie that he just interviewed and you know this that and the other and the guy from the Village Vanguard sort of politely says, well, you can just, you know, you can have just looked on the, the New York Times bestseller list because Woody Guthrie has a best-selling book right now. Um, so, you know, there's definitely, it, you do get this sense of like um, uh, people from different worlds, you know, that there, there really was this kind of folk underground or, you know, even a pop music underground and there was this kind of world that was just not concerned with that at all. And then they, they sort of, Come up, come up against one another, and it's, it's it's interesting. It's it's amusing is the wrong word, but it's it's not not funny watching watching people try to figure it out, kind of in the pages of these files. Um, yeah, it's definitely it, ominous.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it reminds me sort of of you know like the misunderstandings about the way internet communications work that fueled so much of the uh, you know the the Mueller investigation and the conspiracy about Russians still in the elections and and you still have that same kind of disconnect, even though the medium have changed. Everybody in the 50s was into print. Everybody's on digital. But when you get people who are coming into it with no context, it's easy to jump to crazy conclusions. And before we get to the blacklist, I want to talk a little bit about the weavers on TV, because television was a big part of their breakthrough. They were also a big part of television's breakthrough. And uh, they did a number of appearances on M- NBC's Broadway Open House. And I highly recommend anybody going on YouTube and watching these videos of of the Weavers um, on TV. And they almost found themselves selling baked beans. How did that come <laughs> right. together, and how did that fall apart?
2: Right. Well, so that was you know. So uh, actually, I think the perform the performances of the Weavers that are on YouTube are all from these uh, uh, performances in in LA. Uh, from a little bit after that, but those are the only uh, performance only fully videoed performances of the Weavers from their original lineup uh, singing without orchestration so definitely definitely recommended. but the so the you know the weavers, like I said, they wanted to be a pop band and they were in New York kind of right at the center of this emerging media culture which in addition to TV like radio was was an extremely important part of of you know the the weavers early success and they were on broadway open house which was the first really the first um, they were on the very first episode i believe of of that show which was the first late night variety show what we think of as like you know the late the late night shows the late show um, and they you know they were they they wanted to be part of that they wanted to be part of this emerging medium and that that comes up all these times where they're going to be on the radio for some reason there was a a specific show they were going to be on a radio Show They were going to be on in Chicago that they considered to be like really, you know, um, advanced and they got the rug pulled out from that. Um, And uh, in this case, uh, their their very first success, even before they had a number, even before they had number one singles, uh, they were they were doing these shows. They um, Broadway Open House, they signed to Decca um, and they hadn't yet released the records, but there was definitely a buzz about them. So uh, Van Camp baked beans offered them their own summertime TV show, and then uh, pretty quickly uh, they figured uh, the the Almanac Singers part just came swiftly out of the past uh, to, to just nip that show right in the bud. Um, there was this, uh, you know, it's definitely this kind of proto right wing, you know, print version of of the right wing, you know, internet media at that point. I guess it's just, you know, the under the, the right wing media, they had these kind of tip sheets, um, called counter that listed the names of, of people who had been known to have been involved with progressive organizations, like the people song, like people songs or the almanac singers or, or whatever. And the weavers, you know, as soon as they had any buzz about them, just made it right into counter attack. So I guess, you know, some credit to counter attack for having their ear to the ground, but, um, but that's what did it, and they the Weavers sort of compromised within themselves at that point. Um, they had, so they had the number one hits over the summer, and they realized that it was actually you know that the, they were actually in, they were actually in this. They were now national names. They kind of had to sort of come to a compromise, and they decided three of the Weavers decided, and Pete Seeger being the 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 the, the objecting voice to um, abstain from all political commentary or plain benefits or just being involved with anything that could get branded progressive or, or left-wing or socialist or you know any other scare term that was going around then and Pete Seeger said he felt like a prisoner but he went along with it you know this is nineteen late 1950 1951 so for a few years they kind of like sort of walk this line of not you know not talking about all this progressive stuff that these this progressive world that they had come out of and just sort of that's you know that's where that quote came from is about letting the music speak for itself that was kind of their their party line at that point was that it was just the music and everything everything they needed was encoded in there um so it's an interesting few years there and i i think that is kind of why in a lot of ways they do sound as dated as they do there's this very like I said, a very conscious sense of trying to make pop music. And what that meant in, in 1950 was, you know, this, you know, very, you know, black and white sort of blandish, you know, pop world. And they were, they were, that was the line they were trying to walk.
1: Yeah. It's, with an uh, emphasis on white.
2: And yes. Uh,
1: at, at well, the risk the, of...
2: <laughs> themselves, yes, but they were also singing, you know, they were also bringing a lot of black songs to the and, pop charts in ways that weren't really being brought to the pop charts Wim Away which became the Lion Sleeps Tonight the song from apartheid South Africa you know that's
1: that, that's. I was just about to introduce it so it's a perfect segue let's hear the Weaver's version of Wim Away And that was the weavers doing wim away which was a song that came from South Africa uh, that they popularized and then later of course it was it turned into a duo- up standard a classic um, about eight years later so I want to talk a little bit about their they also hit another, parallel with our own era is they were accused of what we would now call cultural appropriation for doing songs like that and for grabbing the the songwriting copyrights talk about that a little bit
2: yeah and that's you know those are uh, those i would say those are those are completely valid accusations there there's definitely sort of a colonialism in a way to what the weavers were doing but at the same time I do want to also I, I, I'll, I'll frame this around Wim because that's a, a, a good example of a song that has a really complicated path from its original version to kind of this place that it has in, in pop culture now with the Lion King and all that stuff, which was a song that Pete Seeger discovered on a record. It was this obscure record out of out of South Africa that was given to him by Alan Lomax. And it was this, you know, song where he didn't understand the language. He just really, really loved the song and really loved this melody. So came up with this version for the, for the Weavers to sing that didn't have any English words in it. It was kind of his really not great attempt at, at, at transliterating the lyrics. But the idea was that it was this this really thrilling piece for the, for the Weavers to play. And, um, their version, not the, the one that made it to the charts, but the version that they played live is about 90 seconds long, and it's just this really strange little piece of music. And in that way, I don't think of it as cultural appropriation, as the song that the Weavers, who were then entirely only a live band, it was it was a piece of music that they liked, and they covered it. And part of the reason they covered it is because it was from South Africa, and that was something that they, they wanted to do, is that they were playing music from countries all around the world and they were doing it in a way that w- was really attempting to to be cognizant of of who the people of those cultures were um, and where that music came from even if that information was really hard to come by and you know they were kind of going about it in this very earnest 1950s way it's still something that they were aware of and being very present about so it wasn't I wouldn't call it Um, so, so, I mean, there is, there is, so there is this, definitely this notion of appropriation, but it is done with, with respect and with care. And, you know, when they perform this song live, the the one instance I found of Pete Seeger, um, violating the the Weaver's sort of pact not to talk about social issues on stage was introducing this song, was introducing Wimway as a song from South Africa, where the writers of this song are treated as, you know, worse than second-class citizens as victims of apartheid and kind of, you know, really introducing that conversation into, into, into the concert. So that's, you know, something that I would say that they were, they were, they knew the line they were walking there, the place where it gets complicated and, and, and bad really is when the songs then get recorded and turned into legal publishing entities, things, you know, things that have writers assigned. And on that front, the Weavers really just face planted. They did that pretty badly um, in their, in their early years. And it's the, the ins and outs of publishing have, have never been, you know, transparent and have never been totally easy to unpack. But the, the, the short version is that they kind of, you know, handed their publishing business over to uh, to a couple of these to a couple of publishing managers in New York, who really went about it um, not in a folky way. They went about it in this very aggressive New York music business kind of way that continued, especially in the case of Wimoway, to uh, to have ramifications for 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 decades and decades and decades. To the point where, like, some of the last letters that I found between Pete Seeger and Ronnie Gilbert written. I think like 2001, 2002 is, is what my memory is telling me. Um, but they were about that. Like they're still going back and forth about, about the, the rights to the lion sleeps tonight. Um, and there are the rights to whim away and the proper authorship and where the money was going. Uh, there's a big, uh, uh, Rolling Stone article in like 2001 called in the jungle, uh, that might've gotten turned into a book, but it's the, the article is it's, it's a, a really good step-by-step of, of how that song went from South Africa to the, to the pop charts. So that's one, that's, you know, that's one example, but every, the thing is every single song the Weavers did, especially if, you know, they're from another country or, you know, writer somewhere else, you know, and the Weavers did perform some songs they wrote themselves, but mostly wrote, mostly performed arrangements. Um, every single song has some completely different lineage with a completely, you know, just a, a, an extremely complicated way to to credit that lineage. So, good night, Irene. Just to give one more example, because I don't want to get fall too down the publishing wormhole, um, is credited to Leadbelly. That's the song that we we think of as a Leadbelly song, right? And part of the way the publishing was constructed for that song was to be able to get the money. You know, Leadbelly himself published so- songs under pseudonyms the same way the Weavers did for the same reason the Weavers did, which was to to, to generate some p- income for himself. Um, and in Leadbelly's case, a lot of the songs that we think of as Leadbelly songs, right? You know, this like authentic Texas blues man who, you know, came out of a Texas prison, this, that and the other. You know, he was doing exactly the same thing, which was taking these much older songs and, and twisting them and turning them into his, into sort of his own thing, but probably if, you know, the song, you know, a songwriter for the original "Goodnight Irene or their descendant from the Tin Pan Alley version had surfaced at that point, they probably would have been able to make a good case that, you know, they had some rights on that song too. So, which isn't to to say the Weavers are any more innocent of anything, just that the, the, the process of folk music as it collides with, you know, 20th century publishing cultures is just this explosively complicated thing. Um, and the Weavers didn't really do well navigating that, but not that many people in that era really did.
1: Um, so. And speaking speaking of navigating rough waters, they, they then get blacklisted and, right. and are pulled into this drama of having to testify uh, before various committees and hearings and, and potentially facing legal charges. And there were two... I thought you did a pretty good job of summing up sort of the two ethical approaches. I mean, obviously... There's also the possibility of of naming names, which some some of their contemporaries, like Burl Ives, did. But the Weavers all kept their honor, even though you know Lee Hayes basically said, if it wasn't for the honor, I'd prefer not to have been blacklisted in the first <laughs> right. place. But basically, they took two different approaches, and and then it was a, a amendments based approach that uh, Lee Hayes took the Fifth Amendment approach, and Pete Seeger took the First Amendment approach. So elaborate on that a little bit,
2: right? So it's it's interesting. Those you know those are Responses that you can take when you know you can take when accused of being a communist in the 1950s. Right. Besides, as you said, naming names, and and taking taking the Fifth Amendment means is the, you know the the right not you know to incriminate oneself in a crime, which, if you take the Fifth Amendment in that case, is sort of acknowledges that there's a crime. Involved, Like, that's what that does, is you're saying, the, the the basis on which you're judging me is there's something valid about that. And I'm not going to admit to that thing that you're accusing me of. And that's what Lee Hayes did. And that was, you know, it's sort of in the context of being called in front of the committee. That's the easy way out. That's what Fred Hellerman did as well. He was. He 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 testified a little bit after them, sort of less. It wasn't in Washington. It was sort of a little less publicized. But that's sort of that's what the vast majority of, of people did was the fit was take the Fifth Amendment. What Pete Seeger did was the first take the First Amendment, freedom of speech. Which is to say, he what he was saying through that was that these means you're using to judge me aren't valid at all. You have no right to ask me these questions. These these fall under, you know. Personal beliefs that I have the right to. So he, he, it's it's actually a very aggressive tactic from a legal point of view, and and you know he he was he was charged with contempt, and and you know went deeper into the legal system, and you know his first the testimony where he took the Fifth Amendment was 1955, summer 1955, and and stayed in the courts for the next uh, seven years, and he was he was Pete Seeger was um was guilty. And and eventually got off on a, a technicality, and was pretty upset about that. Actually, uh, he he really wanted to challenge to challenge that law, um, and so that's you know that's that's a huge you know those that represents very much the difference between uh, Pete Seeger's personality and Lee Hayes's personality. You know, both of them kind of come out of this button-down. 1950s world where you know people are are polite and earnest and you know you definitely think of Pete Seeger as being this you know that's like the word to describe him I think is earnest but yet there's this moment where what he's doing isn't earnest at all that's a really radical stance to take despite him you know being this guy with a you know short haircut and a you know nice tie he's it's a very that's a that's 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 a very far out thing to do in 1955 um and that's, you know, that's what also makes him a civil liberties hero to many, many people. Um, uh, I interviewed um, this woman, Bridget Meyer, who happened to be Jerry Garcia's girlfriend in the early 1960s when, when Jerry Garcia uh, and the future members of the Grateful Dead were first starting to play music. The Weavers were were one of their models. And she said that they the, they the you know Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter and and other members of that scene thought of the the weavers as being authentic not because the music they made you know like came from the mountains or because they came from South Africa or because you know they came from the places they were singing it but because there was uh, an authentic integrity to them that came through through especially through Pete Seeger's first amendment stance um at the trials and you know that's something that that, you know, it's, yeah, that, that, that's what made Pete Seeger a hero to to a lot of people.
1: And one of his peers as a hero uh, and somebody who stood up to the committees as well uh, was Woody Guthrie who uh, wrote one of the songs, the songs I want to play next, um, So Long It's Been Good to Know You. And we'll talk about how they rewrote this song with Woody's right. help to make it uh, commercially acceptable in the 50s. So this is the Weavers doing Woody Guthrie's So Long It's Been Good to Know You.
0: I've sung this song, but I'll sing it again Of the people I've met and the places I've been Some of the troubles that bothered my mind And,
1: and that was the I Weavers the uh, doing a new version of Woody Guthrie's song So Long It's Been Good <laughs> to Know You. They had I hate that right. version.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm just going to say that right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've actually developed some of a perverse taste for the Gordon Jenkins uh, Deca-era songs, and, and I am especially amused... By Woody Guthrie's cheerful willingness to rewrite this song, it, it was written as a depression anthem and one of his most important lyrical statements. Um, you know, uh, Woody Guthrie, the poet of the Okies and and the song songster of the grapes of wrath era, but he was also a businessman and and happy to rewrite the song for a new situation, as you say.
2: Well, so I don't mind the rewrite. Exactly, like I don't mind that that he rewrote it. That's fine. Woody Guthrie rewrote. Um, all of his songs constantly. There were probably there were probably ten or twelve different other versions of, of "So Long, It's Been Good to Know You." Before that, there was definitely like a World War II version. There's all this stuff, and I can't remember the lyrics offhand of the Weavers version because I I have actually sort of blocked that one. But the, the verse that he chose, the stuff that he wrote in its replacement, just strikes me as so I don't know borderline misogynistic. You know, it's so it's not the act of Replacing the lyrics, it bothers me. It's this. It's a. Uh, I don't know. Woody, Woody. Woody was no saint. I guess we'll put it like that. Um, and I. I don't think that. I don't think he served. <laughs> I don't think he served that rewrite in the best way he could have.
1: Yeah, and and the the Me Too uh, version of Woody Guthrie uh, is a, yeah. a, a topic for another episode. <laughs> but but um I, I just wanted to get that in there because Woody Guthrie was such an important factor in the weavers music and they did a lot to popularize woody guthrie for a new generation and and they were blacklisted and sort of went their separate ways for a few years but their managers and i want to talk about these guys harold leventhal and pete cameron they managed to sort of sneak the weavers back together for a show at carnegie hall that succeeded way beyond anybody's uh wildest imaginations
2: Right. Well, that was Harold Leventhal. Pete Cameron kind of jumped ship after the blacklist. Um, he was, he was sort of their pop era manager. Harold Leventhal was kind of their personal saint, I guess would be the way to describe Harold Leventhal. Uh, he was, he was a member of the party. Um, he was, and he was just a mensch, you know, that's, you know, that's the other word that always gets used to describe him. I so wish I could have met that guy and talked to that guy. He's just, he just seemed like an amazing person. um, and he, he was entirely responsible, like in, in no uncertain terms for, for the weavers getting back together. He uh he lied to each individual weaver and said that the other three wanted to do it. <laughs> when in truth all four weaver none of the four weavers wanted anything to do with getting back together and he sort of you know, you kinda of tricked them into into getting back together. Um for that 1956 reunion concert at Car- Carnegie Hall, which turned out to be an incredibly massive success that, that brought them to this new younger generation of musicians, um, and, fa- or people who would become musicians, you know, uh, music fans. Um, previously the Weavers had, had more or less played in pop clubs. That was, that was their initial plan playing in places like the village Vanguard. And then they, um, Played at you know sort of fancy hotel bars and, and things like that, but their second career beginning in 1956, they were really playing for for college students and you know and younger even um, during the blacklist era. Pete especially had had played anywhere and anywhere for him really meant like public you know schools, public schools, uh, summer camps. So the Weavers had this incredibly all ages audience. Um, which is was kind of unheard of in pop music at that point um, to have just this complete span of, of of people from little kids to 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 high schoolers to these you know sort of like veter- crusty veteran left wingers from the from the Almanac Singers era and from the People Songs era like the Weavers had this like really big mass of history behind them already in, in 1956 despite having only you know had hits like five years earlier. There was just this incredible story behind them. So they became really staples of of the concert circuit for the next the next half decade. And Harold Leventhal, to bring it back to, to what this question started as, was their manager through all of that. And because of who the Weavers were, they were, you know, their Goodnight Irene had really brought folk music into, into the American mainstream. And Harold was you know, the manager, he was the American folk music manager. You know, he, he, um, he went on to manage lots of other acts. Um, that movie, uh, a mighty wind, uh, that, that, um, that Christopher and company put out is, you know, it's, it's a, I can't remember the Harold, the 11th character in there, but, but that's, you know, that he's sort of the central figure there. Um, but he, you know, Harold was involved in, in booking concerts and, you know, really, kind of the like the, the the darker aspects of the the, the publishing industry though I, I do believe that they got um, more honorable and more transparent as time as time went along and and they sort of you know sorted their way through the mess of, of folk song publishing they kind of figured out figured out better better approaches to things and he was just what allowed the weavers to function he was their he was their ground control. Um, Pete Seeger left the band in 1958. Uh, Lee Hayes sort of then became a senior Weaver, uh, not in charge. That'd be the wrong phrase to describe it because they were definitely always a uh, a troubled democracy. Uh, but Lee, like I said, be- mentioned before, was was uh, could be a, a fairly brooding person. He was um, he was a life you know he was an alcoholic from a very very early age. It was really not an easy guy uh, to be in a band with. Um, and Harold Leventhal is is the only thing that made. That possible. The, he was sort of the mediator in a lot of ways. Uh, they wrote a ton of letters. That was really helpful for me, just as a, as a researcher. That all <laughs> is that every member of the Weavers, the four original Weavers, and then Pete's subsequent replacements were pretty much, you know, to a person, extremely literate and wrote a lot. You know, re- spent a lot of time corresponding. So there's a lot of correspondence where you see Harold Leventhal kind of like mediating this and trying to come to these, you know, help the band, come to decisions that they could live with, even if they couldn't always live with them. But um, yeah, he, he really shaped them in a lot of ways.
1: And I'm glad you brought up A Mighty Wind because uh, that uh, is, is definitely a pop cultural reference that I was familiar with and, and didn't even realize it was about the Weavers until uh, reading your book and, and learning more about the Weavers. And so it, it's good to tie that together. And I want to introduce our last song, um, the one that you named the book after. Yeah. Wasn't that at a time? And so let's hear the, the weavers doing Wasn't That a Time?
3: The snow was red with blood, their faith was warm. At Valley Forge, their faith was brotherhood. Wasn't that at a time? Wasn't that at a time? Wasn't that, a time. Wasn't that a, time. a time? A time, time to.
1: And that was the Weaver's version of Wasn't That a Time. Tell us a little bit about that song and why you chose it to name the book.
2: Well, you know, that was one of, that was one of the songs that got them called in front of the blacklist. That or got, excuse me, got them called in front of Congress. So that was specifically a song that they were investigated for. Um, it's also one of the Weaver's original songs. It was written by Lee Hayes, or co-written by Lee Hayes, depending on which day you asked him. Um and it's, you know, it's not a traditional song. It's not a song that has any roots whatsoever, um, in anything that you could call a folk song, uh, which makes it a really stand out as a Weaver song. Um, and it was written at a really dark point. It was written pretty much at the exact start of the Weavers in 1948, right after the, the colossal failure of the Henry Wallace campaign for president, um, under the uh, on the progressive party ticket uh, that's the, the the dewey defeats truman headline uh harry henry henry wallace was you know like five or six candidates down or something
1: yeah he lost it was really, Thurman, oh, the God, dixie candidate. yeah was <laughs> yeah.
2: really just it, it, it was the 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 worst you know it was a really bad point so that's what that song that's the moment that song was written and it was kind of about the same thing the weavers were about, and and what I wanted this book to be about, which is kind of this optimism, this this blinding optimism, and this this trust in progressive forces and the the positive arc of history at kind of a really dark, terrible moment. And that's you know that and there's an irony in it, and that's what you know that's you know there's there's it, that's another thing. Is it wasn't there's, there's sort of a there's a wink to wasn't that a time? It's kind of it's gall- gallows humor, or something like that, um, that is not present in a lot of other Weaver songs. But is you know it, it's more it's it's more an art song than a folk song. Um, and it's also the
1: title of a documentary that was sort of a PBS staple throughout the '80s called "Wasn't That a Time That That Chronicles yeah. Their Their Last Reunion of the Original Lineup."
2: Right. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's definitely, but it's it was just an irresistible title, and you know I'm certainly familiar with that song. I actually saw with that film. I saw it. I actually saw it in the theaters when it came out. Uh, the We like I said, the Weavers were my my favorite band. So my mom my mom took, took me to see that because I was too young to go see the reunion concert in 1980. Um, so she took me to see the film in, in 1982 when it came out, and I felt a little bad that I just sort of. I didn't want it to feel like it was a lazy thing that I was just using the same title as the documentary, but it was just, there was just, I just couldn't get my head into any other title that it, it just, it just sort of pushed, pushed the book forward in so many ways because it was a Lee Hayes song, especially, you know, that I wanted to focus on him. And it was, like I said, that, that, that sense of, that that, that sense of, of optimism in a dark moment. And so after the 2016 election, um, my girlfriend and I watched Wasn't That a Time, the, the film, which I hadn't seen probably since it came out. Oh, no, I take that back because we, we taped it off of PBS at some point. So I had seen it again, but I hadn't. I must. I There's no way i hadn't seen it in 20 years, 25 years or something like that, maybe even more. And that and there was a, a thing that Lee Hayes said in that movie that that is maybe what gave me the resolve to just to, to, to push forward and, and, you know, really get into it, and to really write the book and to, you know, to to, to, to get it going, which is, um, so the, the concert, the reunion was in November, 1980, which was a few weeks, um, actually after the Ronald Reagan election. I kind of, I figured that out when we were watching it, I'd forgotten about that aspect of it. So one of the things Lee says on stage at the show was, you know, you know, he's, he's, you know, he was a, the son of a, son of a minister and a, you know, very, he could be very serious and said, you know, I just want to remind you all that this too shall pass i've had kidney stones and i should know and it was it was just i don't know it was like a a a handshake out of the past or a fist bump or a hug or i don't know how to describe it but it was a feeling of solidarity with this guy who had died when i was four years old or something like that who had lived through all this stuff he'd been you know through the depression he'd been through world war ii he'd been through the blacklist he'd been through the 60s you know been through the nixon era Been, you know all these ups and downs and it's you know and, and the that you know that's a funny thing to say i've had kidney stones and i should know but it's there you know the implication that it's gonna suck but we're gonna get through it and this is how we're gonna get through it is that we're here together is that there's this solidarity in the forces of of you know, progressive politics that's existed for centuries. It's existed for forever. You know, really the, you know, the, the, the force, Ed Sanders of the Fugs called it the forces of peace versus the forces of war and the forces of peace will find each other. And it'll, it's, you know, maybe it won't be okay in the way that you hope it's going to be okay, but it's, you know, people can still get through it in a certain way and can still keep fighting the fight. And, the cause or the work, or whatever you want to call it, and that was a really inspiring thing to hear at that moment after after you know he who shall not be named was elected. and <laughs> it it kept me it kept me going, you know that like the the weavers, like you know I've said this enough that their their music sounds dated, but they as people, for the most part, don't feel dated. I feel like I could. Drop into a conversation with with any of them at any moment, and they would completely be on top of of what was going on culturally speaking. They would be right there with every, with any progressive cause about you know, I I you know whether you want to talk be talking about like you know trans identity or 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 social justice or or you know, you know healthcare for all or you know any of these things you know you know the green new deal any of this stuff they'd be right there. It wouldn't be there. Wouldn't be any lag. And I wish I could have talked to, 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 you know, to any of them while writing this. I got to talk to Pete a bunch of years ago. That was long before this. So that was something that was really nice. Was that I wanted to, that I felt really very, that feeling in touch with this, these these sort of fo- forces of good that existed many years ago. And, and there was this continuity with the present moment was something that I wanted to establish and hope I did.
1: I think you did. I want to read a paragraph from the last page of the book that I think sums up what you've been talking about with their uh the meaning of the weavers. And it says, If the weavers themselves perhaps fell into the far myths of pop music and social justice histories, the songs they chose to sing certainly didn't. But it was never about the weavers. It was about the singing along, the harmony and the connection. It was the space between the threads, the singing, not the song, or the singers. It wasn't about the weavers, but the weaving. And uh i think that's a great way to sum it up and, and we could talk about their musical legacy and songs like if i had a hammer and "Sloop john b and obviously in the midnight special that they popularized and brought to future generations but i think you did a really good job of summing that up of Thanks. what the magic of the weavers is and it's been a pleasure to have you on the show jesse cool thank you so much nate
2: i, I really appreciate it
1: cool and that's our show let it roll and we'll be back next time Be sure and
0: subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when author Ben Yagoda joins us to discuss his book, The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Isn't that a time? The Weavers, The Blacklist, and The Battle for the Soul of America is available from Decapo Press and can be found wherever fine books are sold.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.